0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Young Fabians podcast. This episode today is all about the COVID-19 vaccine and the importance of having a global effort in the strategy for widespread vaccination. In this episode we're going to be talking about this global effort and how necessary it is to bring an end to the pandemic and we will also focus on what role the EU must play with that effort in the production and distribution of the vaccines, um, the provision of aid, resources and medical care overseas. So on this episode, we're joined by some great guests today. We have Nathan Hodson, who's the chair of the West Midlands branch of the Young Fabians, and he's also policy officer for the Health Network. Nathan's also a practicing doctor, so he can give us more insight into the vaccine. We have Hunter Christopher, who's the secretary of the Young Fabians International Network, and he's based in Austria, and he's also involved with the Young European Socialists. We also have Elijah Winkel, he's joining us from Schengen in Luxembourg. He's a former international secretary of the Young Socialists and a Young European Socialists VP. And finally, we are joined by Louis Marlowe, who is the producer and co host of this podcast, and he's also involved in the West Midlands branch of the Young Fabians. So, Nathan, you were vaccinated on Friday. Um, can you tell us a bit about that experience?
1: Thanks, Marie. Yeah, five to five on Friday afternoon, I was waiting outside an NHS administrative building on the edge of the city. My colleagues had offered to cover the ward for me because one of the nurses had sent me a link that had let me get vaccinated. And we're all trying to find these links that will help us get into the system to get vaccinated in the hospital. So about 5.30, I was injected and it was quite a powerful moment. Um, I was just in this unassuming NHS building, sat down at a brown desk, feeling a bit like I was in primary school or something. And the nurse, just imagine a classic NHS nurse in a navy blue uniform, she apologised for how cold the room was, and then stuck the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine into my arm. And, you know, after everything we've all been through over the last year, it just made me think about the millions of other people across the UK feeling that hopeful ache as it squeezed into their muscles. Um, But, you know, 3.5 million people have had the vaccine in the UK, and on Friday that overtook the number who've had COVID. Uh, we're more connected by our collective response to the disease than we are connected by the virus now and I think that's amazing.
0: Mm. And how did you how did you feel afterwards? Um, did you have any side effects?
1: Yeah it was I was a little bit achy on Saturday morning so instead of cycling into work I just got lit with a friend and in, when I was in the hospital I w- so I work in a mental health hospital and we've got a patient with pretty bad COVID. I mean I've had five or six patients on the ward at the moment with COVID and some Doctors and nurses, I've got it at the moment. But uh, yeah, Saturday evening, this guy was pretty old, in a pretty bad state with it. And me and my colleague went and saw him and, and asked him about his symptoms. And I listened to his heart and lungs, and he breathed as deeply as he could. And we were wearing kind of thin plastic aprons over our torsos, like thinner than shopping bags, and blue and white paper masks over our faces with latex gloves and eye protection. Um, And we've been told that we're not meant to use any more PPE than that unless we're doing a kind of high-risk procedure. Um, And this guy had to get sent to the the acute hospital where where there's a higher level of medical care. And over there, they'll be wearing the same level of PPE that I was wearing. And, And you just don't feel safe when you get home and you worry about the people you live with when you've been doing that. And there's a big campaign to get better PPE for people in the hospital. And that's why, you know, the ache in the morning was worth it. I'm so deeply grateful for the vaccine and all the scientists at Oxford who've created the vaccine and all the volunteers who put themselves in harm's way by participating in safety trials and efficacy trials and all the people in Staffordshire who are producing the vaccine and people in Wales making it usable for the NHS. They've all played their part and done the bit that only they could do out of a desire to to help us. And on the front line, it really means a lot that we're getting there and getting those vaccines and that it's gonna be safe for for our families in the near future. You know, Labour's the party of community and all of it kind of comes out of these really deep feelings of community that we have, that we all share with each other. And it makes me really proud to live in this country that we've kind of introduced a vaccine. You know, in the first place, we introduced vaccination originally and, and now we've been able to create this amazing gift for the world where it's a COVID vaccine at normal fridge temperatures. I think we're going to talk a bit more about later.
0: And when you say that the UK introduced vaccination, what does this tell us about the vaccination in our current global crisis?
1: So at the end of the 18th century, smallpox was a global crisis as well. It was, you know, the immunity pioneers in the UK uh, were doing huge things. So Edward Jenner, sometimes called the father of vaccination, was a doctor in Gloucestershire, and in, 17, in 1798, he published about vaccination and it's not really that simple though because there was folk knowledge around england about how cow maids tended not to get smallpox they get cowpox and then recover and then after that seemed to be immune to the proper smallpox infection and jenner proved scientifically that by injecting people with cowpox kind of things he could create immunity to smallpox and he published that and spread the word and centuries later that's how we eradicated global smallpox but also there were farmers working on this. So a guy called Benjamin Jesty was just a farmer in England who figured all this out, vaccinated his wife and his children during the smallpox pandemic in the 1770s, and they all all survived it. He worked, he recorded it, but it didn't catch on. And if you look back a little further in the 18th century, Lady Wally Montague went to Constantinople, heard about a practice called, well, we call it variolation. People in, in Turkey were taking threads of cotton, covering it in smallpox, pus threading it under their skin, and so many of them would get immunity without full-blown smallpox infection. They'd been doing it for generations, and she brought that knowledge back to the UK. And around the same time, there was a slave in Massachusetts called Onesimus, who told his owner about variolation. And clearly, people in Africa were protecting one another with variolation before slavery, and Onesimus seems to have been the first, among the first, to bring these immunological techniques to the new world.
0: So um, you mentioned a lot of um, really like, interesting examples of previous crises and how they were overcome by vaccines. But what does this tell us about the current crisis we're in? I think it
1: tells us three things about the current crisis. Firstly, it tells us about our interconnectedness. Smallpox was illustrating the connection between all of humanity. At that time, women and people forced into slavery and farmers and doctors all innovating to try and protect themselves and the people around them. But the virus that we've got has shown that our bodies are all linked and our fates are all intertwined. And in the same way, when people in the UK are vaccinated, we're contributing to global immunity. And on the left, we need to own that kind of community connection. But we also need to own the internationalism of this. It reflects our global reliance on each other's knowledge. Lady Montague's research in Constantinople saved lives in Britain. Today, Oxford vaccines are being made in Europe. And while the UK production scales up and we're using those but Pfizer vaccines from Belgium are being distributed in the UK and there's countries all around the world that have ordered 3 billion Oxford vaccines. It's a global collaboration and we've got to show how we can do that well. We can collaborate well globally on the left and thirdly I think Edward Jenner is really interesting because he wrote down what like the farmer Benjamin Jesty had already proven and I think we've got to think about spreading life-saving ideas as well as inventing them now It's a moment for communicators, for illustrators, but influencers, journalists, behavioural economics, for translators, a moment for the UK and for the global left to unequivocally support vaccine rollout and defend vaccine safety evidence to ensure that the most vulnerable people in the world can benefit from this vaccine and from the herd immunity that comes with it. Um, There's a guy called... Francis Galton, who's a Victorian thinker, and he said in science, the credit goes to the man who convinces the world, not the man to whom the idea first occurs. So receiving the vaccine gave me a shot of hope, I'm starting to believe that the global vaccine story can be a new start for the world. After our exposure to this vaccine challenge, I hope we can inoculate our nations against kind of divisive fake news, against the perversity of jingoism and against the lies of isolationism. And I think that Hunter and Elisha are going to say a little bit more
2: about that. Thanks so much for that, Nathan. That was such a uh, such a great answer, and you you paint such a beautiful picture, really, of the the entire vaccine effort and how it is such a global effort. And it's it's so inspiring to see a community of immunologists and and healthcare professionals and even members of the public coming together to sort of push for an end to this pandemic. You know, one of the main reasons that we want to do this podcast, and uh, thanks so much to you, Marie, of course, as well for sharing this. One of the main concerns there is currently in the international community is about, as you said earlier, the importance of a global vaccine strategy. Because you know, it's not right that countries like you know the UK now and most of Europe and North America are going through the vaccine, yeah, going through their vaccination process. Uh, and their vaccination rollout very significantly right now, but there are so many parts of the world that are left out. This is a, a, a problem in terms of equality and progress, but also um, medically, because as we've seen recently, there's a lot of uh, new strains coming about due to COVID sort of festering and and uh, between certain populations and being able to mutate. So yeah, it, it's so important, as you said, Marie, to, to have a, a global vaccine strategy so that you know, there there isn't a chance for more strains to sort of emerge. Yeah, so I'd like to talk a bit more about the UK and the EU's role in combating COVID and through the global vaccine strategy. Um, But let's let's focus on the EU for now. I want to bring you into this, Hunter. First of all, hi, and thanks for joining us. Uh, And secondly, yeah, could you tell us a bit more about the uh, EU's vaccination strategy, both in the short term and the long term?
3: Yeah, and thanks again for uh, inviting me on. So, uh, with Europe, things are are a bit complicated. So, in the in the kind of short nuts and bolts way, there is a EU wide strategy. Actually, it's a little bit bigger. It's thirty one countries, EEA plus uh, the UK and the idea is mainly focused on the logistics, research, and, and distribution. So they're funding lots of research, the upscaling of distribution, even before uh, things are approved to be going out because they don't want to have a time delay, and also making sure that they're able to distribute to the member states and partners uh, in an efficient way. And that, unfortunately, is where the EU's role ends, and then it gets picked up by the member states, which me and also the partners, so that means there's 31 individual national plans on 31 different healthcare schemes and 30 of those countries do not have an nhs style system so we're talking about a hodgepodge of systems that are different maybe you know province by province or state by state um, and you know we're talking about like private insurance companies public private partnerships you know it becomes a very big mess very quickly um, and then it becomes down to the competency of your individual government and you know even though we have uh, a good benefit in uh, you know refrigerator like home refrigerator safe vaccines once you pop the case on some of these vaccines their shelf life diminishes so just because you know the uh, you know so far the has already managed to uh, acquire 2.2 billion vac- vaccination uh, vaccines so far Um, But that does not translate into 1 billion or 1.1 billion vaccinations that translates into a significantly lower amount. And then we add on to the kind of uh, issues that happen where you have groups that fall through the cracks. So for example, undocumented people, people without proper insurance. Currently right now, myself in Austria, now that my European health card expired a couple of days ago, I don't have the coverage to get a COVID vaccine, even if, if there was available ones here in Austria. So there's uh, big gaps and big problems happening. And this, unfortunately, has to deal with a lot of uh, disagreement on what should be done. Um, you, you can see that that some countries really want to go big and be aggressive and spend money and get things done. Other countries want to hope the market provides for it. And this is kind of the struggle of Europe as a whole. And, you know, this is, this is unfortunately like a two-level problem because not only is, is the union trying to coordinate this among the member states to make sure it happens within the, the borders of the EU so it's safe to move around, but the the bigger scale problem is the the EU cannot function on as an island on its own. You know, the, the not dealing with the, the, the COVID problem in the global south through funding and participation means that we have potential of COVID lasting a very, very long time, even if things are done well and we're safe in developed nations. And because of the global interconnected nature of our society, as we know, we can't leave COVID in one place to fester because it can come back and hit us really hard. So the, you know, things I'm thinking about right now in the short term is that, you know, the EU says they want to get most people vaccinated by the end of the year. I think that's very aggressive. So like realistically 2022. But after that, we need to make sure that the pressure stays on within the member states and the partner states to keep creating vaccine and keep up the resources so that we can provide vaccines when we don't need them to the global south so we can make sure that there is global safety on this. If not everyone is healthy and vaccinated, then we're all at risk for a potential mutation of this virus to come back again. And even if we have the ability to rapidly create uh, new vaccines, the time lag of distribution of said thing means more deaths and more potential disruption. And you know the UN's been, been running a figure that every month we're wasting its $135 billion of, of GDP or global growth that we're just throwing out the window. So if we kind of hold back on this and not coordinate in a big way, it can get worse. And I am happy to say, you know, this, uh, the UN program that uh, the European Commission is helping to, to steward forward is really big. Uh, that was uh, started off, kicked off in France among the WHO and the UN and the commission to kind of get things moving. But, you know, you look at the funder list and you have big names missing, you know, America's not on there. So we have, uh, we're entering a new year with, happily, you know, Joe Biden as the, as the president. But you know, we lost a lot of time last year because big players were not taking it seriously. And so there's a lot of ground to be made up. There still needs to be money raised. There needs to be a lot of things done. And uh, that can't be done alone. And no country can do this alone. And if people go back to kind of like island mentality afterwards, then we'll be in a big problem.
2: Okay, so, so like you say, there's this um, sort of unprecedented global effort. And, you know, there's the, the uh, agreement, COVAX, whose whole aim is to sort of provide a, equitable access to the COVID-19 vaccine globally and yeah a big part of that is producing and distributing the vaccine across the world bringing together richer and poorer countries um, in pursuit of that equitable access. I know you touched on it just now but could, could you go a bit more in depth about why this global effort is so important?
3: So I- I think it's important to, to remember how things were not too long ago, well, literally a year ago, that countries effectively competed on the open market against each other directly for vaccinations. And whether this was like the annual flu vaccine or whatever, every country was a bidder in an auction house. And obviously that means really big countries with a lot of money can basically outbid anyone else. Uh, we saw this very comically last year with like Donald Trump wanting to buy up like the global supply of COVID vaccines just to make a point of it. Um, And unfortunately, for better or worse, uh, countries because they are human, um, make some of the same impulsive things like hoarding massive amounts of vaccines. So people decided in April last year that let's not have the countries fight each other and let's not pit you know, rich countries against medium and, and low-income countries. Let's uh, work together so that we can have resources for everybody. So in April of 2020, the, uh, the WHO, France, and the European Commission got together with a bunch of other groups to, be, to create the, the, ACT, the ACT, the COVID Tools Accelerator. One of the big parts of this is the COVAX. So the COVAX basically provides support for research, development, and manufacturing of the COVID-19 vaccine and vaccine candidates. It started off with nine candidates, and I think it's grown to around, I think it's like 18 now, um, around the world. So basically, like most, there's a lot of vaccines being developed. There, there has been a lot of them stopping developed because they failed, but there's about a 5% success rate on these. So most of the time you are investing on something that will fail, and, and that's inevitable. And the idea was that we will put a lot of chips on the table and and, and invest in a bunch of them so that some of them will work and then we'll have lots of options to provide for people. And the other half was that it can't just be the rich countries getting the dosages, and they can't all just be hoarded. So they wanted to make sure that money put in not only assured that countries putting money in would get vaccines, but also that everyone else would be able to get sufficient vaccines to at minimum cover their most essential people. So your medical workers, your at-risk populations. And the goal is to have 2 billion doses ready by the end of 2021. So this, this kind of like sounds very similar to what the EU is doing on one half of it, um, just on a bigger global scale. And these programs are side-by-side side with each other, which means like there's more vaccines and more money being put in. So it's it's a very much a hand-in-hand hand, uh, program, working with a, a couple of the other pillars of the Act to make sure that not only do we have uh, lots of candidates getting funding, that once those candidates are approved quickly, the, uh, you know they can get upscaled to distribution. And once there's lots of distribution, that distribution can actually get to places through logistics and that everything is tracked through nice you know, digital infrastructure and that the, the countries themselves are not paying for this. And that may, at the end of the day, everyone will end up with getting vaccines no matter what. And if you have too much vaccines, they will, they're creating the infrastructure to move them around so that nothing's wasted. And I think this is a really good thing. And, and it's really kind of, I think, extra important for, for us as, as, as British folk, because uh, you know, the, one of the main people leading this program is a, a former British servant. And, uh, you know, this is also kind of like uh, lampshades quite good into the debate around the uh, the aid budget for foreign aid, because uh, Mark Locock, who is the UN humanitarian agency OSHA undersecretary, was the person who made that increase happen in the first place. So we have this beautiful kind of like political theater of... The guy now, who's in charge of the COVID plan, fighting for wanting the UK to keep providing money to stop the pandemic from getting worse. So you know, it's it's important that we see that not only is is Britain very important to what's happening right now, but on every single level of this project, that it is you know British people helping lead the thing from the top, and more people need to know about this, and more need to understand that it's 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 not a it's not a you know an imaginary thing of us helping the world it's happening every day and if we're not providing the money and the resources and the investment then things start getting hurt
2: okay thanks for that hunter um elisha i'd like to bring you on on this as well um i guess first of all do you agree with what hunter is saying and i'd like to know more about what you think the eu's role should be
4: um like i agree what hunter is saying but i also like agree with like what Nathan was saying in the beginning like that our, all our fates are kind of like intertwined in this global pandemic Is like it's a global pandemic and like just like climate change and like other global issues the pandemic is now going to stop like in front of the borders just because you can say oh yeah no we, we vaccinated all of our people Uh, that the only way that you could then just be sure that COVID is not going to come back is also like by making sure that everybody else in Europe, in the UK, but also in the world is also vaccinated. And I also like think that is like where the European Union can really like play a big role and is also actually playing a big role because Hunter mentioned COVAX before Uh, the European Union is actually the biggest donor to COVAX with 850 million uh, euros. Um, to bring it like to UK terms, I think that's like four and just a bit of garden bridges. Um, <laughs> but like in more concrete vaccination vaccine terms, it's about like with five hundred million euros, you can buy a billion dosages of vaccines. So I think like that is a lot of money that like is really being poured in there to like make sure that the nations that can afford it are also not gonna stockpile vaccines and just forget about like the countries that actually do need some help as well because they don't have the health facilities, the health infrastructure to really also like make sure. And again, like this is just an aid to help other countries to stick to a common kind of solidarity because this is like what makes us out and this is also, like something that we should really push for in the world. Um, And I mean, like, in the beginning, also, the COVAX um, initiative is also just, like, part of an initiative that Hunter mentioned earlier that was um, launched by France, the European Commission, and, like, WHO, because they wanted to make sure that the remedies, in a way, to COVID also, like, shared openly. Um, And I think, like, the strategy on all of those matters is really to test, to treat and to prevent. And in all of those things, you do need help, you do need money. Um, Unfortunately, that's the way the world is set up currently, maybe in our time, we can change it, we'll have we maybe we changed it by then. Um, But yeah, so like, in the whole COVID global kind of response, I also think with the lack of the US setting up, European Union was also like the party, the major party, calling in a donor conference uh, to really get money pledges to support this kind of initiatives. Uh, where also like together they like reached like sixteen billion euros, um, and that's quite a lot of money. I I'd, I'd say like I think you can build many more bridges and get many more vaccines. Um, but I think with the European Union as like a coordinator instead, like in a time where the US was really more, withdrawing back to itself, where in the UK still like Brexit did play a role. Um, and where also like that whole transition time um, was a bit more in people's minds and heads. Uh, it was just very practical for the EU. And I mean also like very useful in a way for like a new European commission to just like stand up and say, okay, well, Fonda Lyon did raise some eyebrows when she was put into that place put into that position but in a way regarding with this she did show okay i want to do something i want to show that the european union can lead and that together with like the member states we can also like assure the financing um for a global response to the coronavirus
3: I I think it's important to also understand that, you know, I'm not happy. I don't don't think the EU is doing enough in this respect. Like, I think, you know, when you stop at at just giving, like literally dumping off the vaccines at the distribution centers, you're really washing your hands of your your endpoint responsibility. To give you like a microcosm version of this exact same scenario. So um, I live in Austria. Austria is a federal country. It has nine uh, states. And the the, the the debate, the vibe going on in coronavirus is that actually each of the leaders of those states could do effectively everything that, that a country could do on their, their own uh, lockdown policies, their own max policy, of you know, this and that. But over and over and over, they decided to wait and wait and wait until the chancellor did something because they don't want to hold the political, uh, you know, pain for anything backfiring. And in very much, you know, the same way, the EU is doing a lot, it's doing a lot of cool stuff, but it, they also want to make sure that they can't be blamed for nation, you know, member state fuck-ups. And that's just the reality of the situation. You know, we're in a, a conservative, uh, you know, parliament again, a conservative commission again. They believe in this idea that that the states knows best and that even, even though in something like health where coordination is really good and, and it's proven to work, they want to keep with this ideological goal of that the best person to implement something is the member state on an individual level. And, and this is in itself a bad idea to approach this problem. And even if some States are doing very, very well, that means there are still States that are not, and not all of these states are the same. So you know, you're expecting Bulgaria to handle its own business the same way that Sweden is, or France, or Germany. And these countries all start off at the same, at a vastly different levels with their own personal healthcare systems. And this is within the union in a bunch of like quite well-to-do countries, uh, even if there is major disparity across. Um, so you know, I think it's 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 very sad to me that that. Uh, the commission wasn't even more aggressive in making sure, especially for the Eastern Bloc states and the Balkan states and aspiring members to the, the community to make sure that there's a lot more on the ground help and assistance and make sure that that assistance is getting across the entirety of those nations and not just being in the rich places that tend to benefit from any program. And that's, for me, is, I think, like, where we as socialists need to stand on this, where the SD group needs to stand on this, and pushing for more. Like, this is good, but it's not enough, and it can't just end in 2021 or 2022 when most of the member states have, have high vaccination rates you know, this is a persistent problem that we will be dealing with for the rest of the decade. We need to think about it in long-term solutions and not only that, but sustainable for the next time this happens because this will not be the last time. So it's better to think ahead and keep together the infrastructure that we're building up right now for the future and
4: not make it all evaporate when it loses interest or political value. Just to respond to like what Hunt is actually, actually saying, like to a certain degree, I like completely am on his side and then like I, think, and I mean, many people also like think the European Union could do more, but there again, like the whole caveat of, well, what can the European Union do? What can the not do comes into play again? And there is per se, there wasn't really like a European Union on health, and all of this kind of things, which because of the Coronavirus, um, as so many crises in the past, it sparked an innovation in how the European Union works, um, really like gave an impetus to, okay, well let's put a founding stone down for such a European Union of health. And where now also like you have initiatives such as like rescue EU, where you'll have different stockpile facilities in different countries where the European Union is like going to put medical equipment, on rapid response for if there are countries that are being overrun by positive coronavirus cases. So I really think like sometimes it's really just like the the fact that you need to be shaken up um, and to realize that well this is an underlying problem because in crises like underlying problems just tend to become amplified Um, and it should also in a way though not just be like a situation of okay let's Fix this over, put a band-aid and not do anything about it, but really use the opportunity to taking the build back better slogan, so to say, uh, and to really do as you always like are tooting your horn about doing, like building back better, but no, actually also. And then also actually having a deeper kind of cooperation in the European Union, where you also do help more on like different health systems. Uh, but then you always get into the discussion of, well, is this something like that the European Union should do? Should it give those kind of guidance and like how far should the harmonizing national and regional preparedness and response plans go? I think like this is like also like the whole discussion just for for another
2: time. Yeah, I just want to say you raised such interesting points, which is that obviously we were talking earlier about the EU's role and the part it should play in the global vaccine effort. Obviously, you know, the EU has a responsibility for all of its member states as well. You know, we think of, um, I think we mentioned earlier, you know, the making it equitable for the rich countries and the poor countries. That works for within the EU as well. So, yeah, I I 100% agree with what you're um, both saying on that front. It's sort of even more interesting now, given that, um, you know, the UK is no longer a part of the EU the UK will have its own sort of part to play. And as we heard from Nathan earlier, you know, the UK has already played quite a big part in sort of producing one of the most sort of effective COVID vaccine candidates, which is the AstraZeneca vaccine. The The AstraZeneca vaccine does not need to be stored at in, insane temperatures. It's much cheaper as well. So I think this puts the UK in a very good position to sort of lead or be a big part of that sort of global effort. However, I just want to highlight something before we go into it, and that's that um, the UK government have made a decision to abolish a long-standing commitment to spending 0.7 of GNI on aid. So taking this into account, Nathan, what does this mean for the UK in terms of its role to provide aid and resources and medical care overseas?
1: Yeah, it's really difficult. So it's not going to change things during this crisis. People are going to step up. And, uh, and, and pay for these vaccines, but you asked what part the EU should play, and it really raises questions about what part the, the UK is going to play in all of this as well. It's, it's suggestive of a long-term withdrawal from the world, the opposite of global Britain, for us to be making these cuts. We've seen that health security and pandemic surveillance are really crucial, just like Hunter was saying before, we're all ultimately at risk and this, this should be a chance for global vaccination that goes beyond the COVID strategy, and that that's where these cuts will have uh, the biggest effect. The CDC and it has a massive global surveillance program. I was working in pandemic surveillance in Kenya a year ago, and uh, you know I was in the Kenyan health department. You end up finding stars and stripes there, where American civil servants are monitoring the development of pandemics uh, in Kenya, and they're watching out all around the world for these things. The U.S. aid under Samantha Power is only going to continue. Uh, you know, investing in this and, and become more tactical. So when it comes to health care and vaccination, we've shown that Britain is a superpower and we should be proud about that. Cutting aid and burning bridges is now the last thing we should be doing. Like Punter was saying, there are British people leading the global effort and we've got to talk about that. The Tories think that these cuts that are being made are, are what their base want. But Labour needs to conjure up an image of, the, of global health leadership. I want to see union jacks planted on vaccination centers all across the world. So that's how we're getting the empire back together.
3: Who knew? <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh. Watch out Europe.
0: Um, so we've spoken a lot about leadership and the role of the EU and the UK and um, like Joe Biden in the USA as well. My final question in this episode, um, and I'll open this question up to everyone on the podcast. So, like, what do you think the UK and the EU can do now to make sure that they are showing themselves to be strong leaders in the coordination of this vaccine? You know, including all the, the, the countries that are least likely to get access to this vaccine soon.
4: Should any of us go? Or do you want to, like, point someone out?
2: Elisha, you go first.
4: Oh no, I've been picked out. Oh <laughs> shouldn't have asked the question. Um no, I think like so like just on one thing, because you mentioned also like um overseas development aid and everything, just because I am from Luxembourg and like I'm also like kind of like proud of the fact that Luxembourg since two thousand and five, we've actually um dedicated one percent of our GNI uh to overseas development. Um, assistance and like our foreign minister is very adamant about the fact that this is also like what you need it's not just like a thing of okay we are a country that can't afford it but it's also like a moral kind of responsibility that you have because you are in a situation to help others you should also help others um and it's not always looking about inwards and saying okay we'll only solve the problem so it's inside before looking outside there's really about like approaching these two topics hand in hand together because in the other hand it doesn't really make any sense if you live on an island afterwards where life is great and perfect while if you look across like outside of the island everything or well, not that i mean that everything is burning right but like the situation there is not going that well cuz for one there'll be more and more people that will want to join you on an island and just for two it's going to be like a constant stress in a way for like the people having to live with like that kind of conscience that you have so much without like sharing that wealth. And and I think like that's also like what is part of like just the European Union's global response because I think up to date there's like been around the, the, the 7 billion euros going into like that whole global kind of response of like helping um, like African countries, but also like in the Balkan area, in certain areas on the Asian continent. So it's like really like about like that. And there, I also think that maybe strong leadership or so to say, like just to pick up on your question, Marie, um, is not necessarily always the thing like that you need because you can be a leader in the sense that you just say, okay, let's do this. If nobody follows... You are not a leader, right? Because you need to convince other people to join in an effort, not just like the person who says, oh, we should we should have a common effort. Because if it just stops there, there's not going to be an execution. There's not going to be like, anything concrete coming from it. And I really do think like that is just where the European Union, but like, also the UK, especially now that the UK said, okay, uh, we will go our separate ways with the European Union. Still, like I'm very sad about that. Um, but then just use that fact to also like say, okay, well, we're not part of the European Union anymore, but that doesn't mean like we can still cooperate with the European Union because this was always also right, the narrative around it. Well, we'll be our own sovereign nation. I don't necessarily think that like that is the, the exact wording that was used, but, oh, taking back control. That was what it was all about, right? But taking back control never meant apparently also like not cooperating with others right because always it went we'll take back control but still continue cooperating with all the other nations that and the european union of course so this is also like one of these opportunities where you can say okay well the situation is what it is but we do want to put dots on the eyes and really like work together with the european union to lead a coordinated effort to help all the countries Um, to get over the coronavirus.
3: I think that's also uh, incredible, Elisha. Also, I want to say the the thing is also we need to make sure that uh, the countries that have gotten over it are also, you know, coming up and helping out. You know, if you look at the funding, uh, way down on that list at the bottom is New Zealand, you know, below Serbia. Which is a bit bizarre, because you think a country that did pretty darn well in the coronavirus situation, who's got a lot of money, should probably be helping the rest of us, you know, get over it. Um, you know, it's, it's all well and good that uh, we're very optimistic about uh, Joe Biden and co, like, coming up and stepping to the plate. But we have to make sure they do it. You know, they, they, they got a tiny little majority, and you think they're going to be willing to uh, uh, bend over backwards to make sure the, the international aid budget's going on? No, nah, they got a lot of problems domestically to deal with. Um, so, you know, it's about making sure that everyone stays along for the ride, that it doesn't end in 2021 or 2022 when things clear up in the Northern hemisphere, that this is, this is a years long project and not just the coronavirus itself. You know, there, there are, um, statistics from the, the, the UN that says around 80 million children in the second and third quarters of last year missed their regular vaccinations. We're talking like, uh, MMR, you know... Uh, the diphtheria stuff, you know, th- these things are, if we don't get them under control, become big problems long-term. And we do not want to, in, in the chaos of coronavirus, to also cause other uh, medical issues going forward. So it's it's about keeping everyone on task, making sure that, that Britain shows, like Elisha said, that it can play well with others, and it can lead, and it can do it in a constructive way. Do I think Boris and Co. can do this? No. But I really, really hope they do, because when, you know, our government does well, we all succeed uh, and, and, and it literally saves lives, not just in the UK, but around the globe. And, and for me, I think that that is very important. And, you know, it, it's, it's obscene to me that we've cut this, uh, this aid budget. It's even more obscene that the Tories created that increase and then got rid of that increase. <laughs> um, you know, th- this is the world we live in and that's what we have to deal with. But, you know, labor as its own thing, we're in a lot of international forums. We can go to the Party of European Socialists and talk to the ruling parties of other nations and be like, you know, we would love for you to push on this, push our government on this, make sure like this happens. We have abilities to affect change in in many ways. Elijah and I have been in so many rooms that decisions are being made. We're not fancy people with like a billion dollars and stuff. We're just just folks who know folks in socialist parties. And, you know, it's, it's about Labour as itself, not just Britain taking a lead on being in the room, creating policy, making decisions. You know, so much stuff happens, not just in the parliaments of the world, but on every single level. And Labour can do that by itself.
2: They're really good points, Hunter, about the role that Labour can play in this. Because, I mean, obviously, Labour aren't in government. As little influence as it may have in the uk when we have a you know a, a conservative government with such a majority who may not care at all about these issues especially about uh, you know the, issue, the the main issue we're talking about like you know we've got a conservative government that cuts or abolished the aid budget labor needs to step up and be a voice not just for changing that and and making sure the uk plays its part exactly as you said they need to be a force for Progressives all around the world. Like you said, I'm so surprised that New Zealand are playing such a small part in this, um, in this effort. And the USA as well. Like these are supposedly progressive governments. You know, hopefully Joe Biden calls for the, the sort of action that's needed. But it's up to Labour and it's up to the Labour leadership to sort of to, to be that force for progressives all around the world.
3: Yeah, just one, one sentence on that, um, you know, and I like you can back me up on this. There's been a lot of times I've been the only UK person in a room at an EU thing. And they always come up to me and especially during all the Brexit stuff would be like, what the hell is happening in the UK? What's going on with labor? Why are they never here? <laughs> blah blah blah, And you just get like hit with so many questions. Mm. And like people forget, yeah. you know, they're not watching Twitter drama every day, but they're watching the UK. And they know what the labor people, the important people of labor labor are saying, because they're not deaf and everyone speaks English. (laughs) And so it's important that like, if there's something big, and if everyone's talking about it, labor needs to talk about it too. And if labor does share the opinion of our other sister parties, they need to get on board and be like, we also agree and let's sit in a room together and come up with some some ideas. Because, you know, England is an island, but it needs to be attached in a continental world of politics, because the geographic borders don't exist when we're talking about what's happening on the continent. And you see this very clearly, especially when you're dealing with our sister parties outside of the union. You know, this is not something new. Um, So the more you participate, the more people are out there, the more labor makes a good name for itself as a force for good, the longer it'll pay off, because we will be back in government eventually. And that goodwill does help. And especially long-term, young activists, young thinkers, five, ten years from now, will be the people in charge. And if they made those close friendships and relationships now, they will pay off later on every single level. And that's just how it is. That's just politics. And politics is deeply, deeply personal. And as I like to say, you know, there's only like ten socialists on the continent, and like five of them are in this room. So you might as well meet
4: the rest of them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I'll back, like I'll back Hunter uh, up, and that's awesome. Like, why I was, like, what when when you were talking about this, I was also just like thinking, in a way, um, for also those Labour voters, for instance, that are maybe also like a bit more critical of the European Union, which I think is also like perfectly fine. Like, I'm not happy with everything the European Union does uh, as well. Like, I mean, there are substantive issues, like, uh, like also like the whole kind of approach to the economy and everything, like, which is some, bit... M- the Neolib in and in, in, in could be a bit more um, directed to the benefits of of us all of the people. Um, I do think as well that you can also like couch the interest that the that a labor government or that even like just the labor party itself would have on the European continent. Because just let, take Hunter, uh, because Britain is not part of the EU anymore, he doesn't have health insurance. Uh, and I think we should get Hunter some health insurance, <laughs> and I think like that is really like something that a labor party uh, a gov- as a government in waiting can like really work on again and say, "Okay, well, what are the perks that we lost?" and really like say, "Okay, not negotiate with any government because that would not be fair, but right, but talk in the kind of party setting in like the political family setting in a way of well what are the things that we could actually like agree upon? And like, what were the things that we could say? Okay, well, once there is a Labour government, these are possibilities on which we can cooperate and in which the EU and the UK can still have a very close partnership and cooperation. And just like a final thing, Hunter is, was most often really like the sole Brit in the room. A sole person from the UK, uh, and that does give you though a certain kind of leg up on other people because in those international kind of fora, either we speak French or we speak English. We never speak French in the Young European Socialists because English is the language like of diplomacy, so to say, in like the Young European Socialists, and also like in the European Parliament. And Mm. as a native English speaker, you are maybe then also like in those situations the person that goes through the text for like textual corrections or uh, on the way of phrasing different things. And because you are that native speaker, you can also maybe at some times like with the consent of others, putting some kind of legalistic language to really like also bring your point across because you have the power of the pen. It also like amplifies your position. And I just like think these are like all opportunities that are out there. And I personally also like as the VP of Young European Socialists wish. Um, There were more people from the UK active in like the fora. Um, It would just be good. And I mean, if if you're not interested in the European Union, well then just think of it as like having friends, making friends on the European continent that also do share your opinion at times uh, because we don't necessarily just need to talk about like the European Union. We can also talk about our states and how a conservative government is not the government we want in any of our countries so i think that is some some big common ground possibilities there so so yeah i really do believe in international solidarity and like international cooperation and that is what makes us socialists like that, that that's what makes the like this this thing work that wasn't as Beautifully phrased as I would have wished, but it brings the (laughs) point across. I hope. Sorry, but like Nathan has also like been looking and like saying, "Oh yeah, like I'll I'll jump in." So I think we we can let Nathan uh, get a word in as well and like round this up. Like he started so nicely, I think he can also bring it all together and wrap it up. And even though it's not Christmas anymore, just make it a little present.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No pressure, now Nathan.
1: (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Elisha and Hunter, just, yeah, it's just amazing to hear about them kind of doing their socialism across borders and, and things like that. Um, and I, I thought it was amazing what Elisha said about so the challenge to kind of solve a problem on the inside before looking outside, and a lot of people are going to say that as we move forward, but ultimately we've got a question about our destiny as the UK and our destiny as the UK Labour Party because the labour movement has to be international in every sense, And I I guess this kind of moment with the vaccine moving beyond our borders is a time when we have to think about taking national pride in fulfilling our global responsibilities.
0: Well, thank you, Nathan. and thank you to all of our guests today nathan hunter elijah and louis for taking part and speaking and thank you to everybody for listening and if you enjoyed it uh, make sure to share it around and tune in again next week